This week on A Lively Experiment, a high-ranking member of the McKee administration who resigned under pressure resurfaces with a lucrative contract to stay on as a consultant. And a bipartisan group says it's time to make some changes in Rhode Island's primary system. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with the analysis, Boston Globe reporter Ed Fitzpatrick, Sue Sienke, chairwoman of the Rhode Island Republican Party, and political contributor Bob Walsh. Hello and welcome. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us this week. Rhode Island's first housing czar resigned his post last month after increasing criticism from leading lawmakers and several disastrous media interviews. This week we found out that the McKee administration is keeping Josh Saul on as a $105 an hour consultant to his successor, Stephen Pryor, for the next several months. Um, Ed, we've heard this music before when Dr. Alexander Scott left. I think those were a little bit different circumstances. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I think this has some people People shaking their heads. What, why the guy who resigned you would keep on? Yeah, my uh, my colleague Alexa Gigas wrote about some of the missteps during the past year and uh, the, some of the late reports, reports not containing some key information on housing. And so it, yeah, it comes as somewhat of a surprise. And it comes at a time when, you know, the headlines have been about the Cranston Street Armory and how that wasn't, you know, that much money, $105 an hour, up to $27,000, that could certainly fix the windows over at the Cranston Street Armory. So, you know, I think the, the administration is going to have to focus very quickly on what needs to happen next to address this housing crisis. Stephen Pryor, Sue, was diplomatic. He said, well, you know, it's kind of nice to do this, but just the optics, I think, for most people are not good. The optics are terrible, and it's very different from Dr. Alexander Scott. I think, you know, anybody that saw Dr. Scott, whether you agreed with what she did or not, she was present, and she was doing a job. Jonathan Saul, what did he do? I mean, the reports that he came out with, um, there was no substance to it. He didn't really look like he performed the job, and he was there for a year. And then we end up in a, in a crisis. You know, we have people sleeping underneath uh, bridges in Moonsocket. We have people in Moonsocket that were moved out. So he actually didn't do his job. So what it, we're paying for failure, and that's a terrible message to send to Rhode Islanders. Robert? Uh, my first reaction was to wince, as my colleagues on the panel have already articulated. But my second reaction is to be charitable. Uh, and we were starting to talk about this in the, in the green room. But I saved it for the show. You bring someone in from out of state to do a high-level position that we haven't had before, and you don't give them a Sherpa to guide them through Rhode Island politics or in trouble. I suspect that the reason that Josh Saul was hired is that he had a lot of policy chops in the area of housing. That does not always translate in the ability to become a czar, to be a leader, to know the leaders of our 39 cities and towns, our legislature and everything else. And until you put the support system in place to allow someone like that to succeed, they're not going to succeed. And in fact, I, you know, let's not sugarcoat it. He did not succeed in that position. That doesn't mean he didn't have something to offer. And if he's willing to stay for a short period of time to uh, inform uh, the new czar, Stephen Pryor, what he's seen and what... Uh, uh, he learned while he was there. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I think if a year ago uh, Stefan had taken this job, he might have hired Josh Saul as a policy assistant in that office, as a deputy czar or whatever. 
Um, and I should also say, we got to get rid of the title czar. History shows us people titled czar. It does not work out well in the long term. You know, my point is um, to Bob is it's not really charitable. <laughs> you know, it's not charitable to keep somebody in a position that did not perform well. And it's not charitable to Stephen Pryor to have somebody that didn't perform well still remain and looking over his shoulders. You know, Stephen Pryor's a smart gentleman. Let him figure out the housing problem. He's got the $250 million, you know, to start, he'd like to have more. Um, it's not charitable. Josh Saul, maybe he has another role in another area that he can be successful. Um, I just don't think it's appropriate to keep somebody well, around that. This just is has going failed. to be an office that's staffed with 35 to 40 people, and right now it's got Stephen Pryor. So they're going to have to staff up, and in the meantime, they're going to need some help. I'm not going out on a limb and defending this. I'm saying I understand the decision. And, you know, we'll see what it I agree brings. with what you're saying about Saul coming in from the outside. And sometimes it takes you six months to figure out what the bathroom is at the Statehouse. In this case, Stephen Pryor knows what he's doing. I don't think, regardless, I think he showed it during Commerce. So I'm not sure how much of a transition you need. All he has to do is talk to his boss, the governor. I just think the optics of having a guy who was considered a failure, now we're in effect. Now, now we're not only paying him, we're paying $5,500 in unused vacation time and health care for three months. I think the average Rhode Islander, that sounds like a little bit of a tinier to me. Well, if he was under contract, it would have cost more to buy out the contract, right? We'll so, see. you know, maybe we're ahead of the game on this. All thing. right. So the man who is taking over is housing czar. The housing secretary for now, Stephen Pryor, I had a chance to catch up with him this week. This is his first week on the job. Of course, he's a known quantity, having been the head of commerce. I met up with him at a job training site. Of course, we know that getting people to build houses is so key at this point. Here's a little bit of my conversation with him about what's going to happen with his job and affordable housing. There are tremendous challenges in our housing market right now, up and down the price points in the housing market people are not finding housing stock available that they can afford. So, Jim, we've got to improve that. We've got to improve that by doing more production. We have one of the, if not the lowest housing construction start rate in the country. So we've got to improve upon that. And there's several things involved with that. We've got to invest in affordable housing at lower price points. We've also got to work closely with towns to give them the tools and to loosen up some of the restrictions to enable more housing to get produced. You're four days on the job, right? Yes. Where do you want to be in six months? Where do you want to be a year from now? I'd like to make sure that we stand up a department for the first time in memory, if not in history, in Rhode Island, let's have a housing department that is equal to the task. You're right, Jim, to say that $250 million is a lot of money, but it is not sufficient. We need additional steady public funding for the purpose. This is one of the highest priorities in Rhode Island. We need to apply resources to it. And we also have to make sure the private market feels confident to invest private money. So those are some of the things you'll see. We will also increase the intensity of our focus on the homeless community. So, Sue, I think the battle that's going to be playing out in the legislature is the zoning regulations. Because, you know, everybody says we need affordable housing. Is it going to be in my backyard? Are they going to use a vacant building? And there was some of that discussion last spring. I think that's where it's going to come down to. 
Well, Jim, I think <laughs> what, they, what the issue is, what exactly is affordable housing? I mean, the cost of living in Rhode Island is astronomical. Um, you look at some of the new developments that are coming in. I don't know how anybody young starting out, you know, even double income can afford some $400, of these. $400,000, right? Can afford some of these houses. You know, I, we were lucky enough to move to Rhode Island years and years ago um, and, and could afford a house here. I'm not quite sure if a young couple now can afford to live here and I stay think here. many of us say the same thing. I could not afford the house that I live in now in our neighborhood, probably all of us. Yeah, and, and, and there's a more immediate crisis of the homeless. You know, uh, uh, Providence College professor Eric Kirsch has said, you know, the, the state needs to buy some hotels or some, uh, you know, some vacant buildings and immediately get people in them this winter. It's been a mild winter, but you've got people living outside. So, yeah, there's that immediate crisis. But to the point about the zoning laws, Jim, that, that's a great question because the, uh, you know, you've, you see Senator Gordon Rogers uh, is, is saying, a uh, Republican from Forster, saying, you know, some rural communities uh, don't have the capacity to handle that kind of density of new construction that uh, some officials want to see in in uh, in more outside the city centers. So and the money it's going to be a battle. The money doesn't always solve the problem because you can buy things, but they in terms of staffing. I mean, we're having a we're having a uh, a worker shortage all across the country. So staffing the armory, making sure you can't just buy these places and plop people down. You have to have wraparound services. Yeah, services. Uh, yeah, it's it's the iceberg problem. Ten percent of the problem is visible to the public, but ninety percent of it is kind of under the ocean, just churning along. Uh, the homeless problem became incredibly visible because of the tents of the state house when Senator Rogers and others start talking publicly about what they want and don't want in their own communities it's visible but the long-term sustainable issue is exactly what Sue talked about they're just regular folks who cannot afford to not only buy a house even afford an apartment to live here we've got uh, Massachusetts incomes coming into Rhode Island and buying housing in the north we've got New York and Connecticut investors buying everything along the south coast and turning it into either student housing or Airbnbs and we've got uh, colleges that are still sending their students into adjacent markets and jacking up rental prices. Uh, so it's got to be a multifaceted solution. Um, you know, if you could wave the magic wand, all undergraduates in our, in our colleges and universities would live on campus. That would free up in an enormous amount of housing stock, but that's going to take a decade or more to operationalize, even if there's an agreement we should do it. That would take a lot of pressure off. Uh, uh, you know, the, the rental prices, but then you've got the landlords resisting, saying, oh, no, I bought this property so I can make a lot of money renting it out to kids. Um, and that's just one piece of it. The homeless problem, uh, uh, Professor Hirsch is a terrific advocate, uh, is, uh, uh, as is uh, Reverend Dwayne Clinker on this. You know, first rule is get everybody inside. We don't want anyone freezing to death. Then you've got to do the triage uh, on the homeless community, the ones that are short-term because of an economic disaster, lost a job or one paycheck away and the paycheck didn't come in, uh, or one medical disaster away and want to get back on their feet. And then there are the underlying issues, uh, including mental health issues in the community and substance uh, abuse issues in the community that need to be addressed before people can get ready to get into sustainable housing. There's a lot on Secretary Pryor's plate. Economics 101 would tell you the more inventory, then the prices would come down. But we're years away from that. I mean, oh, it's $250 million sounds like a lot of money, but it's not, you know, houses aren't popping up right and left. Right. It's a long-term solution. And, and 
in terms of what Senator Rogers had said, there's no infrastructure in these rural places for people that are um, on the lower income scale to, you know, they need transportation, they don't have cars, there's no rip to buses going that way. So if they've got to get to work in the city, there's no way for them to get there. So he does have a very valid point. And to Bob's point, yeah, it's a multifaceted issue. You do have homeless, let's get them inside. Obviously, the Cranston Armory did not work out so well. There was no heating there was broken windows. So there needs to be a place to get those people off the street. We do not have a big homeless problem like we do in Los Angeles and San Francisco. We have a smaller population all around. We should be able to fix this up. But as Bob said, there are lots of step. Stefan, I wish him a lot of luck because he's got a big, big problem in front what of What about the choices, Stefan Pryor? Does it make sense to you? It, it makes sense. I mean, he's familiar with state government. He, he's got a lot of administrative experience in Connecticut and New York. And he, you know, he was seemed to be one of the architects of the Rhode Island 2030 plan. He's got his mind around a lot of the, the policy levers he's going to have can, to can push. Can you quote a few pages from the 2030 plan? Do you have that in the back? Page, I, on page 79, Jim, I like, yeah, I know. <laughs> he doesn't need a Sherpa. That's yeah, a big he start, he right? He already knows yeah. his way around the 39 cities and towns and that state government yeah, and the he's legislature. A, he's a known right? quantity, which helps so, a lot yeah. in Rhode Island. All right, the uh, governor's budget is going to be the source of much discussion over the course of the next couple of months between now and June. The one thing that a lot of people are focusing on is this sales tax reduction proposed, very minimal at this point. What's, it, what's interesting to me, Bob, is you've had, clearly the Republic, Republicans want more, but you've had a couple of House Democrats say that the 0.15 is not enough. I think it's going to be a it's going to be an uphill battle because it's not in the governor's budget now. But what about people who say we've got a six hundred million dollar surplus? That's our money. What can you do more practically for me as a taxpayer? Well, everyone can make a claim on the six hundred million dollars. Every retiree in the state and teacher who was in the system and state employees saying, "Wait a second, didn't Gina Raimondo take two billion dollars away from us because there was never going to be a surplus? Aren't we supposed to get that money back?" And I say that because I've heard it. So you can make a lot of different claims on the surplus. Uh, the Speaker of the House points out that if the surplus is there because we had underemployment and because we couldn't fill state positions, it's not a sustainable long-term surplus. So there's a lot of folks who can make claims on the money. Nonetheless, on the uh, sales tax issue, I think that, first of all, everyone should remember that we don't do sales tax on food and in and, and other areas, so our, our sales tax is high but narrow compared to some states. Nonetheless, clothing and food. Clothing, clothing yeah. and yeah. food clothing. is a big, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm just going to go clothing. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, clothing and food, well, it's a big it's deal. Well, it's a bit of a shock. It's a you big go to deal. other states. states right. There is so, like, you wow. know, if you said lower it but expand it, people say, oh, no, don't do that. We like right. things the way they are. But I think the governor was very clever in putting a marker down in the same way that it took us six or seven years to get rid of the auto tax, said, hey, people have paid lip service to bringing down the sales tax every year. We're not sure what next year is going to look like. We have to wait for revenue esti uh, estimating to come in. I'm going to put a marker down on this. I don't care if it's $77 or it turns out to be $39 for everybody in the first year. It's showing a directionality of where they want to take the state to be competitive in that area. So I thought it was a good idea. I don't think we're going to get the 5% or in, in a year because we just don't know. If we could afford it, we would. Yeah, I think point one percent, one five. One five. 
five. One five percent. Don't short the governor. Yeah, don't short the governor. Right. Um, is is ridiculous. <laughs> um, you know, we have to be competitive with the other states. If we went to six percent, um, at least people from Connecticut and Massachusetts would cross the border and start spending money. Five percent would be ideal if we get there. When you talk about the car tax, the only reason why we have the car tax reduction is Steve Frias was pushing Mattiello, and you know he wanted to get reelected. <laughs> I, that's I why think we that's had a it. big leap of no. A it's not a big leap of faith. He <laughs> but Frias couldn't right. save the paw socks right. that was older. <laughs> Go ahead. No, so you have to yeah. push back. So I, I have to commend Senator Jessica Taylor Cruz that said, let's have a bold action. What people don't understand, if you have more people spending money in the state, then you will get more revenue. But that's it's gonna not take, just. But that's good. That, that's but, okay. Overnight. But you have the six hundred million dollars surplus now. As the cushion now, you will increase your revenue if if people come to the state to yeah, buy. God forbid they'd have to rewrite the budget, though, to include that, because they're putting some toward rainy day. They've got they've got that money earmarked already. Well, they would have you know, to every, blow it up. I am sure that there are, as Bob said, 100 million people that are coming in saying, I want that money, the surplus money. I think, so it's, about, do you, I think it's about 250 for every percent. $250 million will cost you a percent. So it would be yeah, almost about, $500 yeah, yeah. million. We get about a billion and a half on the... Right. Yeah, Governor McKee's proposal would take uh, take away that distinction of being tied for second for the highest in the nation. So it would eliminate that. But the, the other uh, proposals, the, those... Uh, critics say, you know, it wouldn't change any behaviors. No one's going to come into Rhode Island and shop because it's 0.15. So, yeah, you've got Democratic legislators proposing going to six. You've got Jessica De La Cruz, Republican Senate Minority Leader, proposing five bolder proposals. A lot more money, or a lot more revenue loss, but maybe that those would be uh, game changers. How do you think this is going to play out in the session? Nice for discussion, but it not depends really going to get any on uh, May revenue estimating. You know, we talked about a way to give money back to people because we got a surplus. Uh, what if it goes up to eight hundred million dollars? The surplus? Yeah, if it goes up to eight hundred million dollars. Yeah. Oh, then we can do all sorts of things. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, sadly, gonna I don't out. think it's going to. Yeah, I, I think, think the good go thing down. is that we're talking about reducing it. That's yeah. always really yeah. a positive way right. to go. Right, and that's what I, what I was trajectory. saying. About, I mean, yeah. he, he put a, the governor put a marker down. He said, "This is a direction I want to take." He's there for four years, maybe eight, and gets that things can happen over time, and and you've got to be cautious. The Fed didn't raise interest rates all at once to try and tame inflation. They do a little, see how it worked, check. Meet again, check, move forward, move forward, move the state forward. You know, the 2030 plan, which has already been referenced, having an actual long-term vision of where we are now and where we want to take the Please state. Please don't talk about the 2030 plan. I remember again. when we used to we'll talk, talk about, about the 2020 vision. You so the, a 2030 plan is refreshing. Do, again, I think it's just we're moving in a positive direction. I think we've got to make bold steps. And I think that people do vote with their pocketbooks. You know, people go across Massachusetts to buy gas because it's cheaper. So I think reduction in the sales tax will change behaviors here. All right. Um, a bipartisan group came out with a report this week suggesting that we change the way that primaries are held in Rhode Island. I know that's a long way off to the next primary. It's great that we have you as the party chair. I read that you were quoted on this. Now, it would change it. We have a closed primary <laughs> system was. now. <laughs> I saw it in some articles, Susie You're Aiki. away. You know, away. maybe that was tele telepathic. Jim. Yeah, there you go. Um, we have a closed primary system now. So no, if you're... we have a semi-closed primary well, system. Well, so, so why don't you school us on it? So... 
what happens now is if a Democrat wants to come over and jump into the Republican primary, 30 days, they have to disaffiliate. So, and they can jump for over. For pure or illicit purposes, right? Yes, for any illicit purposes. We already experimented with a completely open primary in 1976. We, we had an open primary. And this is what happened. Phil Noel, who was then the governor of uh, Rhode Island, was running in a primary against, I don't want to say... Richard Lorber. Yes, a, a car salesman, right? A car Resident salesman. Resident historian. Right. He, um, he was running. And on the uh, Republican side, we had uh, John Chafee running for U.S. Senate. Um, it was an open primary. Anybody could, could jump in. Well, Republicans took that advantage. They jumped in, and Phil Noel lost that primary by 100 votes. So you can have a rating going on at any time. You know, if that had happened in this election, we could have sent Republicans over to the Democratic primary, and Seth Magaziner may not be the current sitting um, congressman. We could have said to the Republicans, go vote in the most liberal person because Rhode Islanders won't want that. So do you want some type of change? So do I want some? I'd like a cl close primary. I'd okay. like the Republicans to vote for the Republicans, the Democrats to vote for the Democrats, you know. So the other couple proposals are top two nonpartisan primary, um, top four with ranked choice, and then open primary altogether. I could actually live with Sue's proposal of oh my goodness, primaries. We have bipartisan thoughts. Um, on this. So we could form our own bipartisan group that yeah. says why they didn't have us in, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the group. But, the that's why. Committee. That's why we're not in the group. But of the three proposals that this bipartisan group, friends of both of ours from you know way Guy back, Guy Dufault, uh, Gary Sass, uh, uh, Bob Duffy, Flanders, right. uh, yeah, all sorts of folks together. If you're going to do any of them, it's probably. Anybody, everybody's on the ballot in a primary, and the top two go to a general election. So at least what you're getting is the winner has over 50% of the vote. I, I understand why. And then you'd have to look backwards at time and say, well, how would that have worked? So I don't know if it would have been Dan McKee versus Ashley Kalis still, or if it would have been Dan McKee versus Helena uh, uh, Bonanno Folk. Quickly, that before I absolutely um, like disagree that. with that. Right, they call honor. that a jungle primary. Yeah, yeah. They I call think it that's a jungle primary. Yeah. You know, they do it out in <laughs> California. What would happen is, let's talk about the reality. You would get two Democrats in, involved. They would be two Democrats that are running in this state, and you would disenfranchise about 40% of the electorate that typically vote for Republicans. You have between 38 40%. So then what could happen? You could have two Democrats running. They would get 60% of the vote because the 40% are like, I'm not voting for either one of those Democrats. What would occur? We would start a write-in write-in campaign. So then it would be a nightmare for the local board of canvassers to say, oh my God, we've got 40% of the vote that are now, it's a write-in campaign for a candidate. I don't know write-in in that model. You and I really do. don't. Yeah, yeah you I could. Don't know if that allows. Under current circumstances, you could do. So you'd have the two Democrats get 30 and 30%. And in reality, this could happen. You'd get 40% for a write-in candidate. Yeah, but why wouldn't would in that scenario, votes. if a lot more people vote, and I'm kind of agnostic about this thing, why wouldn't the Republican have the advantage in, well, let, let's pretend Alan Fung was on the ballot against all those Democrats. Alan certainly would have made the finals. I don't know maybe, which Democrat maybe, would have maybe, maybe not. made the Did made you know that it was called the jungle primary? <clears throat> that was new to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, heard yeah, that jungle. I, I think a lot of this is driven by the fact that you know, the governor won, won with less than a majority, Mayor Smiley won with less than a majority in the primary. So, um, 
there's been proposals from Representative Kislak and Senator Zuri, I think, to for ranked choice. Oh, uh, oh that's awful. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, that's one piece of legislation that's going to be. You find out like in December, and you got to run it ten well, times. Well, that, that presumes that the differentiation in rank is is you know equal. But in there are folks who would never want to, and folks who would never want me. And if we and if they both vote for Ed, they're like, I don't like either of these other two. I only want Ed to be the well, that's good for Ed. Rank choice is too complicated. Yeah. It's way too complicated. You would have to change all the machines in Rhode Island. To, to educate people, you'd have to spend an enormous amount of time. And it can be so manipulated. Just as you said, if they didn't like you, but they liked me, but they knew that you were my toughest competition, they would mark me one, they would mark him two, and they would mark you three. It would be, you would manipulate You've the election. You've given elections. us a lot of thought, haven't I you? I have. Yes, Susan sits up at night going, Ed, Bob. Well, you see <laughs> the flaws. I'll tell you one thing that well, benefits my team if you had the top two in a runoff. There's always a mayor's race in Providence in the general. Bigger Democratic turnout, Alan Fung would have lost by more votes. If all things being equal, if more Democrats voted in Providence in the general election, because there was no mayor's race, right. that would have helped the Democrat against the if, if wagering was allowed in Twin River on this issue, I would bet. It's not? <laughs> I would bet that's going to stay the way it is because the people who are in office right now are elected under the current system. I think, I think it's going to stick this way. Well, and you, you all have the top two. And I think when we talk about this too, and you had mentioned it earlier, uh, you talk about the primary because any of these changes, you know, you'd have to change the Rhode Island Constitution in 1894. It said the plurality. The person, right. yes, yep. thank you. First past the post. Yes, yes first yes. past the post wins. So you'd have to have a constitutional convention. Can you convention say that four times you, quickly? No, I first can't. Past the post? You know. All right, no. to be continued, Stop I'm with glad the we had you on, though, because you've given this a lot oh, more thought than a, I have. This is a big deal, because yeah, you'd also have to talk about moving the primary earlier, which right. we're going to have to do anyway. Well, and I think we have to discuss yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you talk about election law changes, and you talk about early voting, and we've moved it to 20 days. I'm not sure that we need the 20 days. Um, I don't object to early voting at all, but 20 days is too long when our primary is so late. Right, right. we're going to have to move it. We're going to have to move it. To be continued. Let's go to out our own group. outrages yeah. and or kudos, <laughs> and you can have your own side group after that. And what do you have today? Uh, my outrage is about, uh, I'm a runner, and on Wednesday nights, uh, I run with this group, and one of the better members of it was Pierre Lipton, and he, he just died after finishing a marathon in Arizona. He was just 26 years old. Mm. He, he finished the marathon at 310. He was super fast. He was, uh, uh, in 26 years, did a ton. He uh, was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30. He started a company called uh, 1440 that uh, was a source for unbiased news. Millions of people subscribe to this. So, um, so my, I'm just outraged that he's gone so soon. Yeah. So what do you have? So I'm going to stick with the election. Um, I'm going to stick with the legislation that got put in that wants to allow illegals to vote in municipal elections. Um, I think the U.S. Constitution is pretty solid on that. You have to be a citizen to be able to vote. So I think that that is just a complete waste of time. Well, then that's not going to make it through the—I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, but, but it's just, it, you know, it, it would be ripe for a court— Challenge, so I just think stop they wasting do that in our any time. Other, any other states? Well, no. actually, they they tried it in New York. They wanted the 800,000 non-citizens to vote in municipal elections, and the Republicans actually bought a court court case against that, and it was shot down. Um, up in Vermont, there's a current court case now about that. Um, California to it. Yeah, in California. Yeah. So they're tr you know everybody tries to push the uh, 
push the thing. The envelope. Push the envelope. You get the last minute, Mr. Walsh. Uh, not an outrage as much as an observation. There was an article, front page in the journal, uh, about how hard it is to find a primary care physician. I have seen that. I've been lucky enough not to personally experience it, although I've lost two primary care physicians who moved out of state for a better deal. Um, we need, as a state, to focus on that issue. It's harder and harder. Uh, for primary care physicians to practice in the state. They have a boatload of debt coming out of college. Uh, the paperwork, uh, and now technology-based paperwork, demands on them a greater and it's greater. It's insurance reimbursements, we, too. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, uh, low Medicaid reimbursements, lower uh, it, overall general insurance reimbursements than our adjoining states. We need a concerted effort to do the entire range of activities needed to bring more primary care physicians into Rhode Island. If you're going to use primary care physicians as the gatekeeper for all other health services, you need to have as many as you need to service our population. All right, folks, we're not done yet. I'm making the call right now. We have got some national issues to talk about, so let's do a lively extra. If you can join us now, go to ripbs.org lively. For the rest of you, we will bid you adieu. Ed and Bob and Sue, nice to see you again. Hope you can stick with us for the uh, online extra, but if you can't, come back next week as a lively experiment continues. experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.